tell you, it's Leon B up here. Hi, I'm Amanda Addy. I'm Femi Bancoli. My name is Bonnie O'Demanet. This is the Black and Irish Podcast. This podcast is, is about us getting into the nitty gritty of what it's like growing up as a black and Irish person, growing up with, with a different skin tone in Ireland. Telling the stories, sharing experiences, highlighting racism, pretty much just playing a part in like trying to integrate the black Irish community into the wider Irish society. A weekly chat where we talk about all things race. It's just, you know, bringing someone fascinating on, get them to share the story in their own words, whether it's positive, whether it's negative. A lot of these stories were either experienced by us or they stayed within the community. So we wanted to create a platform where these stories can be shared. This is the Black and Irish Podcast. Hi guys, it's Amanda. This week I'm going to be having a chat with Dr. Lucy Michael, who is an expert on racism and integration. She's been working the better part of the last 12 years researching and reporting incidents of racism, gathering data on discrimination and looking at state racism in Ireland. Really looking forward to this conversation. So here we go. So obviously when, you know, the whole idea of the podcast, first of all, came about immediately, I was like, we need to get Dr. Lisa Michael on it. I feel like your perspective is one that is going to, it's definitely very much needed. And was just going to bring, you know, a different spin on things. So a lot of people listening might already know you from your work with Einar on iReport and um, everything that went on with that. So basically just to kick things off, what exactly is iReport? What was that all about? So the Irish Network Against Racism has an online reporting system where anybody can report a racist incident, discrimination or violence or microaggressions. Um online uh, in anonymously if they want to and uh, the reason why that's so important is there is no other uh, independent reporting system in Ireland. Up until 2008 the National Consultative Committee on Racism and Interculturalism which was a government funded body uh, had a reporting system and when that closed um, that reporting system disappeared so Einar uh, wanted to put something in place with their then 30 something members. They now have over 100 uh, member organizations. Um, and when I met the director of that in 2013 at a conference talking about racism and policing, we put together uh, our skills and experience and uh, brought iReport uh, into being in 2013. So seven years later, it's still running. Uh, on a, I have to say on a shoestring. Um, it is not something that's well funded. It's not well funded by government. Uh, it's an independent system. Um, and of course, the nature of the data and the analysis is that it's a critical system. Uh, it's something that feeds critically into a whole range of public bodies, um, as well as giving us a sense of what racism is uh, across the country in a whole variety of different spheres of life. Uh, and it's important mm. because it's that independent space. Uh, so a lot of the member NGOs feed into that, um, but anybody can report to it. And that's really the, the crucial part. The data has been used yeah. uh, in bringing pictures to United Nations committees, um, in helping uh, organisations like Angarda Shikona uh, respond to, to criticisms, um, in helping government departments to think about where they want to put attention and so on. But all done from that uh, that perspective of, of being an outside uh an outside set of data. And why do you think we need a system like this? Why did we need um, iReport in the first place? 
Well, one of the things that you'll have noticed since uh, with your very high profile activism this year is that people constantly contest the existence of racism. So even though we know it's there yeah. and we know it is everywhere in schools, in hospitals and mm. GP surgeries, it, on the street, in your neighborhood, in your community organization, in your sports club, it's everywhere. Um, but the, the first thing is to deny it exists. So by having a set of data that's constantly produced and analyzed and published, published, it means that you don't have to start from that point of always having to say it exists because the data is there. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the roles that, uh, that I think is really important for us to play is to say there is an authoritative set of data. Now you can argue with the data as much as you want, but it's there. Um, and that means that when we start talking about racism, you don't have to start from the point of even arguing it exists. You can then start start talking about where it exists yeah. and how it exists and how it um, thrives um, in certain contexts. Yeah. Um, and that's a different place to start from than having to argue about the very fact of its existence. Just from your research, like what 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 are your findings been like? How, what is the difference between the racism here in Ireland, let's say, as opposed to it would be abroad? Like what? What does it look like here? I think in in many ways we're talking about a racism that is very similar in its um, impact on people in one respect when we're talking about uh, individual hate crimes or aggressions or discrimination. What looks different is the uh, number and range of responses to it. So if you look, for example, in the UK, which is where I trained initially in my early 20s and, and was involved in... Um, work with Afro-Caribbean and Pakistani communities looking at racism, they had a very wide range of government and uh, regional and local organisations that were well trained in understanding and recognising racism, that had a public sector duty that they took seriously and were held accountable for. And they had a number of high profile bodies responsible for addressing racism. And that meant that when you did confront a problem of racism, there were a set of uh, institutional responses and processes that you could follow. Not always successfully, granted, but here we have mm -hmm. so little on the landscape. It means that there really is very few places for people to turn. And the process is so frustrating. Um, as I'm sure you've heard yourself in hundreds and thousands of stories, uh, it's the frustration of not being able to to address the racism that really causes the worst psychological impact. Yeah, yeah. What got you into the work that you're doing now? Is this something you've always wanted to do? Were there events that something happened that kind of pushed you into this line of work? When I was a child, I was in a school that was multi-denominational. Uh, so we had people from um, every religious background in our school. And yeah. it occurred to me that in Ireland, that didn't seem to be okay outside our school. And for me, certainly the experience of being in that context with lots of kids of minority religions, of which I'm one, and children also who were different um, ethnic, uh, ethnic groups and skin colour. And that was, I have to say, in the 1980s in Ireland. Uh, and it was unusual. It left me with those kind of questions about who belongs and when is it OK to say that you are a little bit different to everybody else, that you're not just white Catholic settled Irish. And certainly there were times when my Irishness was questioned on that basis. And 
you know, I take seriously the impact of those small incidents on kids because they do make a difference to how you feel about yourself. When I was in uh, UCD studying law uh, in my early 20s, I started looking at the history of um, religious tolerance in Ireland in the legislation uh, and how that worked in politics. And I saw the very small number of refugees that were accepted into Ireland because of the anti-Semitism here. I looked at the fear that was evident amongst certain groups in, in Irish history. And it occurred to me that as we were kind of looking around in Ireland in the late 90s, early 2000s, Ireland was becoming more diverse. And I wondered about what that would look like a generation on. So I guess for me, that question has always been there is what does it take to be considered Irish if you know you're Irish, but other people question it because of your religion, your skin color, your ethnicity? Yeah. Um, and when I went to the UK to try and understand what integration looked like, I guess I, I learned a lot more than I thought even I was going to um, and had my eyes opened to our colonial history. That was something that wasn't really apparent to me before I left. You know, I left age 22. It wasn't yeah. something that I had uh, particularly looked at. And so I think for me, I was really lucky to have learned um, first from a, a, a gorgeous Afro-Caribbean community in Stoke-on-Trent and then Pakistani communities in Manchester, people who just accepted me absolutely into their homes and their lives and talked to me about politics, about family matters, about migration, about the decisions they make to move countries, not to move, how to raise their kids in societies that don't accept them sometimes. And, and always that work I wanted to do to bring it home. Um, mm. And I'm glad that I have been able to do that. But what's really key for me is that the whole time I was in the UK I was doing that work alongside respected listened to leaders of ethnic minority and migrant communities or from ethnic minority and migrant communities in a whole range of professions in a whole range of different spheres and in Ireland we just haven't got there yet so yeah. it's really key for me that we see people coming through the pipeline into those positions and being heard because that's the only way we know we're making progress. Recently, you've joined the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. You know, that's basically looking at the development of, you know, the structural racism here in Ireland. So what does that look like for you? Why did you join that in the first place? And what are the goals there? What is that trying to achieve? Well, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission was formed from what were two different bodies, the Human Rights Commission and the Equality Authority. Uh, and the government merged them um, into this new body in 2014. And at the same time, they introduced in legislation a public sector equality and human rights duty. And that's, to all intents and purposes, quite similar to the one that's in operation in the UK, which I had been familiar with in my earlier career. But with one difference, and that is that the public sector also applies to Angarda Siakona here, whereas it doesn't apply to the police in the UK. The public sector duty could yeah. be very powerful uh, because that basically says that every public sector body has to have regard to the equality and human rights of everybody it serves. So it's staff, it's clients or customers, anybody who uses or benefits from its services. And more than that, anybody who's in receipt of public money is also bound by the duty. Mm. Now, we are six years on after that legislation and that public sector duty is still not well understood by the public sector, never mind the public more widely. So for the last number of years, I've been asking the question of why is the public sector duty not being 
implemented and uh, public sector bodies held accountable for it. And essentially what I wanted to do was to join IREC and find out what we could do to push that on. And I wanted to also make sure that uh, the issue of racism and all of the related issues uh, around uh, immigration laws, around uh, direct provision, uh, traveller accommodation, that those things remain high on the on the agenda. Now, as a white woman going onto a body like that, doing that kind of advocacy, you'd ask, well, is that representative? Well, the thing about IREC is it's not intended to be representative. It's intended that it's people who have particular skills and experience. Now, that's what I bring to it. But thankfully, I'm very glad to say that IREC does have on it three ethnic minority people, two of whom are migrants, all amazing advocates. Um, and I'm able to work side by side with them on these issues. So it is a very important space, but certainly I'd be looking at ways of helping to make the commission more effective in so much as my yeah. limited role as a commissioner allows on the public sector yeah. duty. I'm still in the learning point at this stage. I've only joined two months ago. And yeah, what I'm also yeah. doing is trying to understand what's the pipeline into that? How do people from minority backgrounds get into a position that I've just gone into. Uh, and I think yeah. it's really important yeah. to keep that pipeline open. The resistance is very often not about explicit racism per se, but the idea that racism isn't worth bothering with, that it's not worth the grief to change systems in order to address racism because it's not an important enough issue. And I think that's where the real challenge is, is trying to make it clear that it is necessary for organisations to change how they work, to address the way that their structures produce racist outcomes. But mm. that's it, it's a difficult fight sometimes because you veer between talking about individual racism where people are very sensitive to being described as racists to talking about systemic racism where you're essentially saying, look, we're all racist because we live in and support a racist set of structures in our society. That's extraordinarily mm. difficult for people to hear when they're not it's used hard. to the kinds of yeah. conversations about racism that you and I would be used to. So finding a, a language to talk about that more widely is really important. Um, and it's difficult sometimes to do that in the kind of scenario we're in now where the far right are trying to control that conversation. And what's the point in a person saying that they're a good ally and learning about unconscious bias if you won't push to change the racist structures? Like for me, that's just very, very powerful. And it actually, it kind of, it challenged my way of thinking about it as well. Just to kind of elaborate on that point for, for people, I know there's a lot of skepticism around the word ally in this context and, um, you know, allyship as a whole. But I genuinely feel like that it's something that is necessary in order to keep pushing, you know, the conversations that need to be had. From your own perspective, what is it that people need to take on themselves? Like, what is that responsibility that people need to to take on to actually do the work of being an ally or to be considered an ally? I always liked the quote from Scott Woods that said, uh, racism is the thing you have to keep scooping out of the boat of your life to keep from drowning in it. When we know and recognize that racism is in the structures of our lives and the way we live them every day, we have a choice. Either you can go along with those mm. structures, knowing that they're hurting people 
on the basis of something they cannot change about themselves or you Mm. do something anything to try and address and change those structures for a lot of people being a good ally is about your individual behavior and I think partly that's because of the way we've had that public conversation a lot of the magazine articles Twitter Facebook shares etc have been about what you should do or how you should talk or be as an ally that's okay to some extent but it only takes you so far so you know we all get things wrong sometimes we get things wrong in our friendships we get things wrong in our organizing we get things wrong in our language Uh, being able to accept that and move on and to say okay I got it wrong let's move on what can I do better and to have those honest conversations Mm -hmm. it's not an easy thing for for anybody to do that people can become defensive but you have to get out of that because if you don't get out of that mode of of thinking then you're never going to be able to address that those structural issues you're never going to be able to address how your life and how you live it is directly harming somebody else um so Mm. I think you know the question about allyship definitely has to be developed I don't think it has been developed enough and it's become very Mm -hmm. much about that individual behavior so for me you know if you are in if you're a parent in a school and you see an issue, you know, if, even if you were the white parent, take it up, you know, don't leave it to the yeah, parents of yeah. minority ethnic children to have to have that fight because it's our fight. It's not their fight. It's everybody's fight. If a school belongs to everybody in the community, then everybody in the community has to be involved in changing it. It's that responsibility to not leave it to the people who are being harmed to make the change. Now, you know, you and I know that there have been kind of conversations about to what extent can you be an advocate or an ally who's who's got a strong voice? Do you need to stand back? Do you need to stand up? Where do you place yourself? And I think that's really about trying to work closely with the people who are most affected and to understand when they need you to stand forward and when they need you to stand back. And I think that's the only mm. way that you can do it is to say you can't be a white ally and and not talk to the people who are affected about the thing you're trying to change, right? I've seen that in lots of organizations where someone says, oh, yes, we have this wonderful diversity and equality program. They say, great. And who was involved in bringing, drawing that up? And it wasn't the ethnic minority staff or migrant staff that were involved. We see it in international organizations here in Dublin who bring in their diversity program from the United States and deliver it here in Dublin, where that American Mm. context does not make sense. It's not the so, same. Yeah. You know, yeah. the terminology is different. The history is different. The experiences mm. of, are different. You know, and the same thing actually in those organizations is true in talking about, so, say, for example, the experience of LGBT people where they're drawing on organizations in the UK, a, a little closer to home, but still not that local context. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. allyship has to be engaged. It has to be respectful. Mm. It has to be absolutely about partnership because if it isn't, yeah it's performative and that's a balance that we we sometimes get wrong but it's something we have to keep battling with Mm -hmm. what are some practical steps that people can take to be better allies I think the first thing is to look around you where are the diverse spaces uh, that you move in and which areas look to you like they are segregated for whatever reason very often the spaces we move in, whether they're sports clubs or schools or neighborhoods, are segregated for 
economic reasons or reasons of history. But that doesn't mean that uh, we can't make sure that we are moving in more diverse spaces. So if you find that all of your groups are white, Catholic, settled Irish, uh, think about what other spaces you could move in to learn. And that doesn't mean that the weight of your learning is on people from ethnic minority or migrant backgrounds, but rather about thinking about what are you not exposing yourself to? And listen, when you are in spaces, and that might be going to a book reading, it might be going to uh, an event, um, listen carefully and think about what are the things that you don't normally hear in your life and try to really, really hear out for the things that you that you don't normally uh, hear and then find out about that. Go and do your own research read your books, read your films. There's loads of reading lists online and lots on YouTube. Uh, In fact, I have lots of little videos on my YouTube channel from my teaching days that I've left up there so that anybody who wants to learn can go and use those. So just on that note, how can organisations do better? I think when you talk about organisations being more inclusive or very often even you talking about people at the heads of organisations or in key positions in organisations thinking of themselves as allies, then you've really got to think in that key way about how do you bring people along with you? Because it's not just okay to get the CEO or the head of HR all up on the right lingo and and yeah. behaving in the right way. You've actually got yeah. to bring the whole organisation with you and and bring cultural change in that respect. So I'd say there's a couple of things. One is take training seriously. I've seen a lot of companies move to online training that people do in 20 minutes at home with a little quiz because it's cheaper. But that's not the same as getting people into a room to really talk through their questions. Um, and I think that's why local local context and good trainers uh, is key. And I have to say in that, I, I'm not selling any training services. I, I have no interest in particular in generic <laughs> training programs like that. People often ask me about that. But there are loads of really good trainers out there. And now yeah. there are so many black and minority ethnic trainers out there in Ireland that are yeah. expert and, uh, and very often have the backgrounds in corporate or legal or whatever. So you can find a trainer to fit your sector uh, and to fit what you need. And I really you know, encourage organisations to go and spend the money to get a good trainer in and to deal with those things because for an organization it pays off the second thing is go beyond unconscious bias Uh, Mm. unconscious bias is helpful to some extent but actually some of the research is showing now that it can make things worse because it reinforces stereotypes it makes people double think themselves all the time we're actually just really good cross-cultural communication understanding of discrimination and equality issues and then unconscious bias as part of a larger picture of institutional and structural racism is the way forward. And finally, you know, take seriously the possibility that diversity will bring benefits to your business or your organisation that you haven't thought about. You know, very often when I see people talking to organisations about EDI issues, they say, you know, well, the boss isn't that convinced that this is going to pay off. But actually, you know, when you think about diversity, you're thinking about a whole set of staff that you may not have been able to hire or didn't hire before that have huge experience and qualifications and skills from abroad and from here with different Mm -hmm. perspectives and different networks. Um, You're talking about customers or clients that have uh, very different perspectives and experiences. And having your organization turn to thinking and taking seriously those things will really improve an organization so and make it future proof. So I think those are my three things for organizations. Training, go beyond unconscious bias and take the benefits seriously. What changes do you hope to see come out of this year? Because I know this year has been 
just very, very forward, I think, in terms of activism, activism and in terms of people starting up new things, having different kinds of conversations on a mainstream level that we wouldn't have had before. From this momentum, what do you hope to see happen in the next, let's say, year or two? Well, one of the things that I was really encouraged by uh, earlier this year around the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in Ireland, was the number of people who were able to come forward and tell their stories in the media. And the coverage of that was really good as far as I was concerned in terms of the Mm -hmm. amount of coverage that it got. Where I would have liked to see it develop a deeper conversation was that what the media were very interested in representing, and I think also what a lot of young activists have represented, is those individual stories of harm and hurt. And we have to get past just that individual story of harm and hurt to the deeper analysis to say, this is how these structures affect that and produce that harm and hurt and prevent resolutions to it, prevent support. Because for everybody that is abused in a school, there is the lack of an anti-racism policy or process in the school. There is a teacher afraid to take it on. There is a principal who sends minority parents home and says, we're not dealing with it. Uh, For everybody who is discriminated against in a workplace, there is legislation that just isn't good enough and a legal process that is extremely difficult for people to to cope with. For everybody who doesn't get service from Angarda Shikona in response to an incident of violence, and we've got a, a landscape at the moment of rising racist assaults, for everyone that doesn't get satisfaction from Angari Shikona, the impact on them is much worse. So I think we need to start really thinking about what are the responses that are not there or that are inadequate to those stories mm-hmm. of harm and hurt rather than just the, the initial harms. So that's where I'd like to see the conversation go to. What is missing? And I hope that we will keep that conversation going. My concern is that just like the first iteration of Black Lives Matter, it will become a footnote for a while. Um, Mm. But my confidence is raised by seeing the kinds of work that you and other activists have done this year to really take on that denial of racism and to be very out front about the necessity of dealing with that in Ireland today, now, uh, without letting it drop again. I think that's so crucial. Why? Why do we need to care? Why do we need to keep carrying on this conversation? I think because we are all part of communities and those communities are not static. They don't um, they don't stay still. A village is not a, a set of people that is always the same set of people. And Ireland and the world are not the same every day, every year. You know, my community growing up in Fingal was one that was, you know, in lots of ways more diverse than many places across the country. It's still the most diverse area of Ireland. And it's fabulous for that. You know, there's there's so much to learn in our communities. But, you know, when I talk to people about racism here in Fingal, you know, the number of people who say to me, oh, yeah, my granddaughter, my ne- my nephew, my niece, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law. So everybody you talk to has a relative who is a migrant or ethnic minority person. They may well have traveler background themselves, you know, as, as some of our group do. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting to, when you got talking to people, you you know, you might see a white Irish face when you start talking to people, but then you realise that actually you're really talking to people who have very diverse families already. Um, yeah. And diversity is not something that is new or scary. It is a fact we live with. The only thing scary about it is that some of our families 
are being harmed and hurt on a daily basis by mm. by aggressions, by discrimination, by lack of opportunities. And um, that's the scary bit. And it's our communities that will suffer. I might not think that I'm directly affected by racism every day, but if I live in a community that's affected by racism, I am being affected. And that's what we have to keep remembering is that, you know, Ireland has always been a diverse place. It has never just been a white settled Irish place, white settled Catholic place, you know, and you only have to look at the experience of travellers to understand that. But also I've been, you know, learning in recent years about the history of mixed race children in the mother and baby homes and industrial schools. These things bring to light the fact that Ireland is not this imagined white place that we thought it was. There have always been insiders and outsiders, and there's always been people who were determined to decide that the nation looked like a certain kind of person. And we have to resist that type of history making because it doesn't reflect what history was really. When you look even at uh, the name of Fingal, where where I'm from, uh, it means foreign tribe. When we look at our history, I think we have to be fairly, be a little bit critical about it and, and not take for granted that diversity is something new. And I think if we start from that point, we realise that actually this is about us minding our communities, minding our children, all of our children, um, and, and safeguarding ourselves for the future. Because if we don't do that, all of us will be affected. So that's it for this week's episode, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you check us out on Instagram at black underscore and Irish. That's it. Thank you guys and see you next week.